Today's reading is from John chapter 15, verse 18, and we're reading until uh, chapter 16, verse 4. Uh, You'll find that on uh, page 1083 in the Church Bible. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will teach you this where they will treat you this way because of my name for they do not know the one who sent me if i had not come and spoken to them they would not be guilty of sin but now that they have no excuse for their sin whoever hates me hates my father as well if i had not done among them the works no one else did they would not be guilty of sin As it is, they have seen and that they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me and you also must testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning, because I was with you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Well, we're going to uh, look at the Bible now, and we're going to spend some time in John chapter 15. It's on page 1083 in these Turquoise Church Bibles. Really, really worthwhile having a Bible open, um, if you possibly can, can, uh, whether a paper version or online or something like that. But um, really, really handy to have the Bible open so you know where we're going, and um, that would be great. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say, it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. I would say to the House, as I've said to those who joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Yes, it's true that I uh, visited the Churchill War Rooms this last uh, uh, week with a uh, uh, my family under Whitehall and uh, 
an utterly inspiring visit it was too. I don't know if you've uh, been uh, to those war rooms. I uh, uh, retained the uh, impression from you. I thought I'd just read the quote rather than give you my best Churchill impression. But those famous words are stirring words, aren't they? They were the, the, the first words of the uh, new Prime Minister Winston Churchill in May 1940 and are a powerful example of being crystal clear at the very outset of the painful journey that lies ahead. No mincing his words, no glossing his words, no spinning his words. He looked the uh, House of Parliament between the eye and he said to them that this would take blood, toil, tears and sweat. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, as we say. Because to defeat the evil regime that was the Nazi regime, a regime, incidentally, that looked very close to winning in the early part of 1940, before Churchill became Prime Minister, it took an extraordinary military effort. A uh, uh, united uh, cabinet um, that was made up from all the political parties working together to fight the enemy. And Churchill knew what it would take, and he knew that Parliament needed to know up front what it would take. Nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. This morning we're looking at some more famous words from John's Gospel. We've been studying these this term. Eavesdropping, Jesus talking to his 12 disciples, the apostles, the night before he died on the cross and then subsequently rose again. And he is preparing them for the days ahead the challenging, troubling days ahead. Life on earth with Jesus no longer around in heaven. And uh, some of the words that Jesus has been saying in this famous upper room discourse, as we call it, might get high fives from people in the world, might be quoted as great examples of inspiration and uh, motivation. Uh, particularly the first half of chapter 15, is full of those kinds of lines. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. What a stirring line of Jesus. Or verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. Another stirring word of Jesus. And then verse 13, which no doubt will be quoted next weekend on Remembrance Sunday, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And we saw that last week and they are wonderful words and they're inspiring words and they're moving words. But today's passage has hit a minor key and the language predominantly moves from love to hate. And in just those few verses that uh, Toby read for us, seven times we're going to hear of the world's hatred of Christ and thus its hatred of Christians too. It's a message this morning about Christian persecution, in other words. Opposition for standing with Jesus. Now, this is a topic, actually, we don't often talk about, though we have thought a bit about it in the last few months here at Highfields. Uh, back in the summer, or, or uh, in September, I uh, preached uh, a message on our evening service, Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then a couple of weeks ago, I guess a lot of us were here on Sunday evening when we had open doors who came and shared with us a really powerful experience of what it would be like to suffer 
under persecution in the countries around the world where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then at the start of the summer, we studied the little passage just before John 13, which is called John 12. And uh, let me read these words to you. I put them on the screen. Very truly, this is Jesus saying, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Powerful words, poignant words. I think the Lord has really been challenging me about those words. He's obviously speaking about himself, that unless the seed that is the Lord Jesus Christ dies and goes into the ground can't bear fruit. I'm sure Jesus would have loved to not have to die a hideous death on the cross. So he was prepared to go into the ground, so to speak, and die. But in so dying, that seed has come to new life and born many, 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 many seeds. And much fruit has been born, new life, because of Jesus. And he's saying, as with you, sorry, as with me, so with you. Just as I need to go into the ground and die to bear fruit, so you need to go into the ground metaphorically and die to bear fruit. And uh, that is the calling. That is the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's got to be clear at the very outset. Now, I guess in a room like ours, lots of us currently would call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus. There'll be some here I know who don't yet follow Jesus, on the outside, eavesdropping, looking in. What would it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus? I'm so glad you're here. I hope these studies are going to be helpful to you. It would be really, really worthwhile counting the cost before following Jesus. Just like if you're going to build a house, you've got to check that you've got the tools, you've got the equipment, you've got the material, you've got the planning permission, you've got the foundation built before you go. Halfway through, crumbs, we've run out, we don't have the kit. Go to war. If you're a general, Dwight Eisenhower, the the leader of the Allied forces, he's got to know, has he got the troops? Has he got the, the, the capacity to win? You don't go to battle if you're not sure of the cost that's going to be involved and whether you can win. And the same applies to following Jesus Christ. Now, the fact is that you know, I hope, as well as I do, that following Jesus, while a challenge in the UK and getting harder and harder and harder, is still, look, we have so much freedom to follow Jesus. And that was why it was so powerful a couple of weeks ago to think about what it's like to be in a closed country where you can't sing your hearts out and you text your friends and go to church and walk. It's all got to be undercover. And uh, Open Doors helped us see, didn't, uh, didn't they, that uh, on the world's hot list of the most dangerous places to be a Christian, you've got places like North Korea, famous we, we talk about, or Afghanistan, or Pakistan, Yemen. You know, one of the uh, largest um, uh, populations of Christians in the whole world is Nigeria. Over 60 million Christians in Nigeria. Incredible number of Christians. of the population would claim the name of Christ, and yet it is one of the most dangerous places on earth 
to be a follower of Jesus today. Uh, the statistics tell us that on average, every single day, 14 Christians are murdered for their faith. Today, in 2023, 14 Christians. I was chatting to one of our church members a few months ago, Joseph Sunday and Denise, uh, who, are, who are members of Highfields. They're from Nigeria, and they were saying to me, or Joseph was saying, that that number 14 is a conservative estimate. That's not kind of overstated, that's understated, if, if anything. And he told me that when he was a child, he was aware of churches that were being attacked and pastors who had to be in hiding. It was a terrifying place to follow Jesus. Another recent publication talks about a Christian genocide taking place in Nigeria right now. Today we're thinking about Christian persecution, specifically the why of Christian persecution. Why would Jesus forewarn his disciples about the cost of following him? Why would he do that? Why would I do that today? Surely I would want to water down the hard stuff. Come on, Dave, what are you doing? Weed that out. Package the gospel in a nice, clear, simple, easily swallowable, easily accessible way so that people become Christians. Don't talk about that stuff. We think, we feel, I feel. Why should I keep saying it? Why does Jesus keep saying it? Why would Paul and Barnabas pick up similar language in Acts 14.22 and say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God? Why? Why should we expect it to be a hard time to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? A worth it time, by the way. It's totally worth it. I'd love you to all become Christians if you're not yet. You've got to have your eyes open to the challenge that lies ahead. There's a lot to lose. How do we respond to all this as well? Well, they're the kind of questions we're thinking about today from our passage. John 15, 18 to chapter 16, verse 4. Three lessons from Jesus. First lesson, we side with a hated Messiah, and so face hatred too. We side with a hated Messiah, so prepare for hatred too. That's our first lesson. And, um, and we see that in verse, well, I'm going to read actually from verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. What do we see from what Jesus is saying? Well, he has said many times in these few verses, I'll say seven times, the word hate. He's talked a lot about the world. And the world, Jesus is telling us, hates Jesus and Jesus' followers. Now, initially, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but there are surely lessons and very clear applications that flow downstream from that upper room towards us today in the 21st century. Now, we need to be clear, what do we mean by the word world? What does Jesus mean? He's not talking about planet Earth 3, the globe that we live on. The natural world, that's not the world in Jesus' mind here, nor is it the world in its bigness. Whatever, however many people who live on the world, that's not what we're talking about here, eight, nine billion people. We're not talking about that kind of world. We're talking about the world in its badness. We're talking about the world that uh, 
John would say of Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 10 that Jesus was in the world and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognise him. It's a world made by God that doesn't recognise God on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the world that we're talking about. And uh, that world hated Jesus, so don't be surprised if that world hates us to Jesus' people. We're joined to Jesus. We saw that last time. If you're a Christian, you're connected to the vine. You're a branch. The world hates the vine. Guess what? It's going to hate the vine's branches too. Now, the fact is, why else, though, should we experience this hatred? Well, because the world hates Jesus, because we don't belong to the world anymore. Down at verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Out of all the people in the world, once upon a time, you belonged to that group. You were in the world and were of the world. You had the world's values. You had the world's priorities. You had the world's loves. You had the world's desires. The big maxims, the big isms of the world were your maxims, your isms, your priorities, your loves, your desires. But I've taken you from that and I've drawn you to myself. And you're no longer part of the world. You're in it, yes, but you're not of it. Here's a question to to remind ourselves. Who are my people? Who are your people? That doesn't mean, you know, who are you friends with? I want you to be friends with everybody and anybody. That's, of course, right. Jesus would say, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Are you of the world? We're all in the world. Are you of the world? It's a good question, particularly if you're maybe a teenager here or a student. Very easy to think, you the values of my friends, well, they're my values. They're my people. They're the people who I identify with most. Their loves are my loves. They're... Their feelings, my feelings. Their way of thinking, my way of thinking. Is that how you define yourself and identify yourself? They're your people. Well, your people, God's people, who have said, actually, you know, I'm not going to dance to that drumbeat. I'm not going to march to that tune. I'm not going to take those maxims, those values, those priorities, those loves. I'm going to choose a different set of pathways to go down. Jesus' way. We're not in it. We're in the world, sorry, not of the world. So the world hates Jesus, it'll hate us. We don't belong to the world. Why does the world hate Jesus? Did you see that here? They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Oh, we've got a new dimension comes into play at this point in the, in the passage. Here Jesus is referring to the one who sent me, which is, of course, the Father. We have seen again and again in these, in these chapters... Jesus teach us about the Trinity, and uh, we believe in the Trinity. That is a, a triunity. There is one God. That's the unity, but in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is equally and fully God. Trinity, one God in three persons. And uh, here Jesus is saying that the reason the world hates you. It's because they don't know the Father who sent me. Indeed, more than that, it's not just Jesus that the world hates. It's not just Christians that the world hates. Have a look down in verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. 
If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. So the reason for their hatred of Jesus and of Jesus' people, the reason for that is because they hate the Father. Now that's a very serious thing to think about. Because sometimes you get the impression that well, it's, it's just Jesus I've got a problem with. I'm, I'm happy with God. And at this point, we need to think really carefully about how we share the gospel with our Muslim friends, particularly, say, or people from another religion. And they'll say, look, I'm like you. We believe in God. You just don't believe in Jesus. I know. Jesus would say, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God, the Father, who sent Jesus, who loves Jesus. You can't say, look, we're we're basically the same. We, We all kind of worship God. No, we don't. Totally different God. Totally different approach to reality. If you reject Jesus, you reject the Father who sent Jesus. And to think about that is just an incredible thought. To reject the Father. The Father of mercies, the God of compassion. Paul Elsewhere describes him as he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the provider. He is full of mercy and grace and love. And the world hates him. Hates him. It's not just, oh, don't we like him? No, it's a bit, not my cup of tea. You know, hates that God. Why does the world hate that God? The world hates that God because in what Jesus said and did when he walked the earth, he said things that highlighted people's sin. Have a look down, verse 22, 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin, or verse 24, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and they have yet hated both me and my Father. In other words, as Jesus teaches and says his words, and as he acts, does his works, in so doing, the world that's observed is made more culpable, because the The sins that they're harbouring and hiding and holding tight to have been exposed by what Jesus said and what he has done. In that sense, Jesus' words and his works are a little bit like that dental mouthwash that you sometimes have to swill around your mouth in a uh, dentistry. I had a a dentistry a few days or a few weeks ago, and you have that dental mouthwash. You you wash it around your mouth, and it doesn't take the plaque away, but it shows you where the plaque is, and you kind of smile, and you see all the kind of nasty plaque that's in your mouth, because the, the mouthwash identifies it. Now, maybe if you clean your teeth really, really well, you have no plaque there, but sadly, lots of us do, and have the plaque. And, and as Jesus taught and did things, as he taught about selflessness, as he taught about love, he talked about sacrifice, he talked about righteousness, he taught about prayer. It drew attention to the fact that naturally we're not very righteous. We're not very prayerful. We're not very selfless. We don't make sacrifices. We actually think of number one. We worship and love created things rather than the creator. And it kind of identified the sin within the community like that mouthwash does. Now, wonderfully, Jesus hasn't simply come to expose the the spiritual plaque in our lives. He's come to deal with it. But the way he deals with it will hurt (laughs) like sometimes it does at the dentist. Not because he hates us, he loves us. But he knows that he needs to be serious with us if he's to remove the spiritual plaque from our lives. But no one wants to hear that. No one wants to see that. In fact, says John uh, in, uh, in John chapter 3, here's Jesus speaking, um, 
Next slide, please. Oh, I think my, uh, my cliff has stopped working. Next slide. Um, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In other words, I think Jesus is saying Christians don't need to be hated. They don't need to be hated. If they hold fast to Jesus' words and hold out Jesus' words, they'll be hated. So, so if, you, if you don't want to be hated, just, just don't hold fast to Jesus' words and don't hold out Jesus' words. And you, you, you'll have a nice, casual, calm life floating through. It, it, no offence. Very, very easy going. If you're going to hold fast to what Jesus says, you're going to hold out what Jesus says, don't be surprised when the hatred comes. I have quoted Carl Truman before. Let me give him to you again. Written... 15 years ago, so insightful. You really do kid only yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much urban ink tattoos you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban gibberish you spout, how many art house movies you can find that redeemer in. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist you hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and his ways you stand firm for what God's word says about marriage between a man and a woman for life about keeping sex within that context you hold fast to those truths that will not go down well if people get wind of it now incidentally here at Highfields we uh, we have uh, love to welcome people from all sorts of different backgrounds. and Maybe you are here today, experience uh, same-sex attraction. We love having folks from all sorts of backgrounds and uh, a number of folks in the church family experience same-sex attraction. But we clearly want to hold fast to what the Bible says about marriage being between one man and one woman for life. That's the, the place for all sexual intimacy. And we need to hold that. But standing firm with that truth, as Jesus held fast to that truth in uh, Matthew chapter 19, will lead to the world hating us like the world hated him. Well, that's our first lesson. We side with a hated Messiah, so prepare for hatred too. That's the biggest lesson by far, but we've got two more quick lessons which we need to close our passage with now. So here's our second lesson. We speak for a hated Messiah, so expect the Spirit's help. We speak for a hated Messiah, so expect the Spirit's help. Here we are, we're at the start of, um, well, towards the end of uh, chapter 15. Now, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. At this point, we're picking up some themes from a few weeks ago. Initially, these were words that were written for the Apostles who were those responsible for writing down all that Jesus said and did, were filled with his spirit so that they could get it all accurate, and courageously did so. And they suffered because of it. Uh, Many of them end up losing their lives. The word for testify here uh, comes originally from the same word where we get the word martyr from. And many of the uh, apostles who wrote the scriptures were martyred for their faith. Which means that... uh, we can absolutely trust what the scriptures say, what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit inspired them to courageously write it all down. And we saw a few weeks ago that just as we love Jesus, 
if we love him, we need to obey him. But if we love him, his Holy Spirit will help us. I think there's an important lesson for us today. When the advocate comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me and you must also testify. In other words, he's not saying, hey, um, apostles, hey, you Christians in the 2020s, just leave evangelism to me. He's not saying that. He's not saying... uh, you're going to make so many mistakes, I'll just do it all myself. I'll, I'll evangelise people on my own. No, he needs to take human words and breathe on them his spiritual power and take from our words a gospel message to proclaim. He'll empower us, he'll help us by his spirit as we speak for this hated Messiah. A couple of weeks ago, we illustrated with uh, trying to draw a picture. Some of you may have been around. We tried to draw a picture and... Uh, do something that seemed really, really difficult. And uh, maybe uh, the Lord is saying, you need to communicate this message, but you're not on your own as you communicate your message. It's if the Holy Spirit has got his hands around our hands, directing every word we say. So when someone says, what did you do at the weekend? Instinctively, we want to just kind of keep our heads down. Oh, I went to church. You went to church? Yeah, I went to church. And I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You follow Jesus. Like, what does that mean, to follow Jesus? I thought, like, what? Yeah, I, I believe he's... He died and he rose again. He's alive today. I know him personally. Wow. And dare you do that? I find it very hard to stand up and speak of Jesus. But uh, that's what he asks us to do. He asks the apostles to do so. And he calls us all to bear witness to him. To be martyrs for him as his spirit helps us and gives us the words to say we're not alone. Uh, often it's hard to kind of generate something to say. Uh, wonderfully throughout November and into December all the way through December we've got so many events that we can invite people to carol services interesting discussions about race and the environment and and uh, C.S. Lewis etc lots of opportunities for us to say hey do you want to find out more about what I believe in a very cringe free hopefully clearly explained way that helps people see the difference that Jesus Christ makes to life today I wonder whether you might, even today, while you're having your lunch later on in the day, be praying and asking, I wonder who can we speak to and invite to come and hear the good news of Jesus in the next couple of months. We stand, we side with a hated Messiah, so prepare for hatred too. We speak for a hated Messiah, so expect the Spirit's help. Expect to be unpopular as you hold out the Bible's message. We've got to expect that, friends. It's not going to be an easy thing. It's very easy to say the easy stuff, but will we have the courage to talk about, if you follow Jesus, you've got to turn, you've got to repent. If you don't follow Jesus, there is an eternity that is heading our way, either heaven or hell. Very hard to say some of these kind of things. If you follow Jesus, it's going to mean lifestyle change. Hard to say. It's called faithfulness to say those things. Well, here's our third thing, and it's a challenging one. And it's the first few verses of chapter 16. We won't spend long in it because we'll spend more time next week here. Hatred for standing with Jesus will come from the most surprising places. Hatred for standing with Jesus will come from the most surprising places. We can all think of those who would hate Jesus and we can think of the, kind of the, the, the menacing cartoon characters who want to breathe down and persecute. But do you know where this opposition is coming from? Let me read verses 1 to 4. All this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you 
about them. Jesus is saying that hatred because of Jesus' name will come not just from the secularists, the people who have no recollection, no awareness of spiritual matters, but from the religious establishment. It was the case at the time of Christ, religious leaders who, in teamwork, collaboration with the Romans, got Jesus crucified. And it's happened throughout history, actually, that as the gospel message has gone forth, it has very often been the religious establishment that has tried to sit on it and squash it and crush it. It was uh, the religious establishment that the Protestant Reformation broke out of. Just uh, um, We had Reformation Sunday last week when Martin Luther discovered that you don't earn a right to heaven because of what you do. You need to be given God's righteousness as a free gift. But what an explosion that led to within the medieval Catholic Church. When we clearly explain that Jesus says that only he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Or that there are lines that he puts down about how we're to live our lives ethically in following Jesus. Sadly, it's very often the religious establishment who are most aggrieved at the line that Bible Christians have taken. And uh, we we prayed about that earlier on. And I think at this point we've, we've got to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in denominations across the UK. Where holding fast to what God's word says will lead to what? People not getting positions in churches or having to leave their church building because they won't toe the line with the current consensus. And it will cost. It will cost. Is Jesus in control of it? Absolutely. He knew it was coming. Forewarned is to be forearmed. He wants us to have our eyes open. Churchill began, I have nothing to offer but blood toil, tears and sweat. I wonder, as you consider walking out from here back into the real world as a, I guess, many of us faithful follower of Jesus Christ, I hope your eyes open as to the challenges that lie ahead. It's a joyful thing to be a follower of Christ. Such blessing, such joy, we saw that last week. Such love, such a cost. There's a lot to lose when you step out down the pathway of following Christ. There's more to gain, but there's a lot to lose. We side with a hated Messiah. So prepare for hatred too. Expect to be unpopular, friends, as you hold fast and hold out God's word, the Bible. Expect to be unpopular. We speak for a hated Messiah, so expect... The Spirit's help. He's not left us as orphans. He's given us an advocate who will testify with us, empowering our words, giving us the courage just to say, yeah, I was at church. I'd love to invite you. Got loads of things coming up. We love to welcome people in who've never been. And don't be, don't be naive. Hatred for standing with Jesus will come from the most surprising places. Sometimes people who think they have the moral high ground are the people who are most opposed to standing with the one who gave his life, turned over the tables, that we might have life in all its fullness. Well, let's have a moment of quietness and bow our heads as we think about whether we want Jesus to do all the dying or whether we're prepared to follow him to the cross. Let's have a moment of quietness and then I'll pray.
Heavenly Father, we admit that sometimes hearing your word is a real challenge. It's been hard to preach and very possibly hard to hear. But it's so important to have our eyes open, to be forewarned and therefore forearmed. Lord Jesus, thank you that you endured the cross. You saw the joy before you, but you endured the cross. You were prepared for hatred, for persecution, for opposition, for death, for us. To pay for our sins, to forgive us, to wash us clean. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be prepared to stand with you. You're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. May we not be ashamed to be called your brother, your sister, your friend. Lord Jesus, we pray you'd forgive us for the times when we've ducked, we've hidden away, we've kept our heads down, we preferred anything for a quiet life. Help us to be men and women who hold fast to your word, who hold out your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who helps us as we seek to serve you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.